It's time now to look to God's Word. I ask if you would please open in your Bibles. There are two texts today, Nehemiah 12 and Hebrews 2. It's our custom here to stand for the reading of God's Word, doing that separates it from the Word of the One who is sent to proclaim it. So if you would please stand now. We'll be reading together Nehemiah 12, verses 27 through 43, and we'll turn from there to Hebrews 2 and read verses 10 through 13. We're reminded elsewhere from Scripture that the grass outside will wither, flowers will fade away, but the Word of the living God will endure forever. And so we strive to hear and to heed it faithfully together as the people of God, for this is the Word of God. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melale, Gilale, Mai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them <clears throat> at the fountain gate. They went straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, on the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half of the officials with me and the priests Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamayim, Micaiah, Elione. Zechariah, Hananiah, with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Utsai, Yehonahan, Malchijah, Elam, and Etzer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Now please turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray together. 
Dear Holy Spirit, we believe that you inspired your word. We believe that you preserve your word. We believe that you will powerfully bless the reading and especially the preaching of your word because we are weak. The preacher is weak, but you are strong. And so we ask now that through the ministry of your own word, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would receive glory and honor from the church. We pray with confidence in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like to ask a question as we begin thinking about our text this morning. It may seem a little silly, but it gets us where we need to go. How do you know a happy person when you see one? Well, you might say it's because they are smiling. You might also say it's because they are singing. And if we were honest and thought about it a little bit, when we are at our happiest, we sometimes tend to sing. Joy has a way of making the heart want to express things. And today in our text, we see very joyful hearts that are happily singing the praises of our God in a remarkably beautiful way. And so we're just going to jump right into it. You have an outline with three points. We're going to waste uh, no time because there's a lot to say as we think about the joy of our singing, the beauty of our singing, and finally then, our singing Savior. The first point is the joy of our singing. Uh, This text this morning and the sermon with it, along with the text next week and the sermon that will come with that, uh, really are in many ways, two sides of the same coin. You can see where I stopped just before the end of the chapter. Uh, That was intentional. There's a theme that runs through the chapter and through the two sermons this week and next. And the theme is that of dedication to our God, particularly as it relates to the idea of worship. Today, we're going to focus on joy in worship. And next week, we're going to focus on faithfulness in worship. In many ways, you can't have one without the other. You cannot have joy without faithfulness, and you cannot have faithfulness without joy. This chapter, Nehemiah chapter 12, before us this morning, uh, could be one of the most joyful chapters in the entire Old Testament. It's certainly the most joyful chapter in the book of Nehemiah. The people of God have gathered together to celebrate, and quite a celebration it is. They do so not only with great joy, but as we are given remarkable detail, tremendous beauty as well. And so we could wonder uh, what it is, what is the source of their joy? The first verse that we are looking at in many ways accuses us in, it is time to dedicate the wall. This is kind of like a wedding, and we saw one uh, not very long ago. Uh, This is kind of like a wedding or another really remarkable event where a great crowd has gathered and no expense has been spared. Attention to detail has been poured in. A large and remarkable set has been displayed before us. You could liken it to perhaps a scene in a movie that many of us have seen and can easily imagine in our minds, kind of like when soldiers come home from a great battle. A great celebration takes place down at the docks as those boats begin to arrive. It is something like a parade, but it is even better. People are all dressed up and have spared uh, no expense, have overlooked no small thing, and as they gather together there alongside this processional, the music is loud and almost seems to grow in anticipation of the climactic celebration. Some people are so happy, they are weeping, because even at times, joy reaches a level so high It embodies itself in accompanied tears. A great price has been paid. A great sacrifice has been made. Life has been won. 
and there are reasons to celebrate. And even women and children stand there eagerly awaiting the first glimpse of something wonderful to come, a beautiful sight, you might even say their father's eyes. A long-awaited reunion with much to celebrate, much to sing about, and much joy. And if that illustration happens to strike or grab your heart in the slightest of ways, Nehemiah 12 should the same way. This is a great celebration. A great price has been paid. A great victory has been won. Life has been not only preserved, but restored. And the people of God have every good reason to come and to celebrate. It is time to dedicate again the walls of Jerusalem. As we saw last week, Jerusalem is indeed a holy city, not because the city in and of itself is holy, but the God who dwells in the midst of Jerusalem is himself holy, holy, holy. And this is the city of God. This is the place where his temple abides. This is the place where his presence is manifest. And therefore, it is fitting to dedicate these city walls as holy. But it's also a moment in time, a moment in history that ought to be underscored, a point at which people would slow down for a little bit and reflect that all that is drawn together, gathered together, in a manner of speaking, into one's hands. The fact that the people of God are here to dedicate the city walls means that God has brought them back from exile, from bondage, another form of slavery for their sin. An exodus has taken place once again. And by God's grace alone, the people of God have come home. They have come back home. And so on this momentous occasion, when the people of God have another exodus to celebrate, city walls that have been built, a temple now standing, they summon the Levites from their homes. And those Levites come from the surrounding villages. They're like the hobbits. They've come together. And not only do they have their place back, the importance of place, but there are clearly now many people. They are repopulating the cities around and the local villages. That's why you were so excited to read all those really long genealogies in the book of Nehemiah, weren't you? You know, there's only one very short one, kind of sort of left, and we're pretty much done. Now, did I have the place back, and they're repopulating, but very clearly, God has blessed them. He hasn't simply brought them back alive. He's brought them back with a measure of bounty, with a measure of even material provision, uh, simply reflecting upon the inordinate number of instruments here in this chapter gives us the signal that God has put good things into the hands of his people. The fact that they have beautiful instruments like the harp, the lyre, cymbals, trumpets, all of these things are, are things that people have, not when they're in a moment of desperation, but rather when God has bountifully blessed them that they might have the ability to not only have such instruments, but even the time to play and to practice them. God has caused his people to abound, a people in the place that God promised that he would give to Abraham. The blessings of the Abrahamic covenant have in many ways been restored to Israel. That is what you see in Nehemiah chapter 12, even though and against the backdrop of all the demands of the Mosaic covenant having been broken, which was more beautiful when Israel first came into the land, or now, when they have come back after exile? The answer is yes. This is the remarkable grace of our God. That where their sin abounded, God's grace abounded even more. And there's one certain story told over and over within every story in the history of the people of God. And that story is this. God's grace toward his people is relentless. Relentless. 
In many ways, it is determined and unwavering. Though they often seem to wander far from him, his grace will not let them go, at least not so far away that they cannot be brought back as the exile has proven. And he is determined to have a people for himself. His commitment to his own promises, to his own person, are unwavering and cannot be broken no matter how many times we have broken his covenant and his ways. God's grace is rooted not in our goodness, our righteousness, our faithfulness, or anything in us at all, but rather in his own character and his own promises. He proves to be over and over the promise giver and the promise keeper. God's grace, then, beloved, is the reason why his people are singing. They have no other reason to sing, and yet because of his grace, they have every reason to sing. But pause uh, and think about it for just a moment. We have now this, this gigantic new Psalter hymnal that some of us are still getting used to. But how many of those songs would exist if it were not for God's grace? The answer is none. How many Christian songs outside of our Psalter hymnal would exist were it not for God's grace? The answer is none. And when we sing, why do we sing? When you sing, why do you sing? Is it because you're told, or is it because God is gracious? There is a difference. When we sing, it's driven by the grace of God. And this point, if you'll notice on the outline, is not entitled, The Happiness of Singing, but rather, The Joy of Singing. And I do want to make something about that. In our chapter, the language of joy is used many times, but the word happy is not to be found. And you say, well, preacher, what's, what's the big deal? Uh, what's the difference between joy and happiness? There's a profound difference between the, tw- the two. A profound difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is far more temporary and superficial. Happiness comes and goes. Happiness can be skin deep. Happiness, in a certain sense, is the feeling one gets when you open a present on Christmas morning. And it lasts a little while until you begin to open the next one, right? And at some point in time, you almost forget the ones that you first opened. And then comes the sugar, and the first cookie tastes great. But then you're on the edge of diabetes, and you can no longer remember what you ate and what it is that has you so buzzed all of a sudden. You get the point. There's a little bit of silliness in it. And that's kind of the point about happiness. There's a little bit of silliness in it. In many ways, it is skin deep, like opening a present or eating a candy bar. Joy, beloved, is something of a whole other order. Joy transcends the temporary and dives deep, deep into the emotions. Joy can abound when happiness is utterly gone or missing. And many of us know this fine distinction between joy and happiness. I once sat in a room where a person was dying. And as that person was taking their final breaths, and it came to the moment when they ceased to breathe in this world, I was almost startled, kind of surprised, a little thrown off, when a loved one in the room lifted up their voice above the hush of quiet that had taken over everyone else. And through tears, this person said with a smile, Victory. Joy rises above happiness. It transcends the temporary, and it dives deep into the motions. In Nehemiah 12, 
Israel's not simply happy, they are joyful. They are alive on the other side of death. They are back on the other side of exile. Once more, they have passed through the waters of death and judgment. And they have come through saved by the grace of God alone. They have every reason to be joyful and they have every reason to sing. I'm going to read verse 43 twice in the chapter. It really is the climax of this section. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What's, what's the word of that verse? Joy. It's there about five times. There's an interesting way that the Hebrew is phrased here when it says, For God had made them rejoice with great joy. In the Hebrew, it reads, it's kind of funky. It goes like this. And they rejoice in exceedingly grace rejoicing. They rejoice in exceedingly great rejoicing. And they sung so loud. You know what a light flashlight does? It, it casts a light, kind of like a lighthouse around it, uh, where others can see from a great distance. Here, they sung so loud with such joy that they could be heard far away. This is like that party down the street. You know the one that you want them to be quiet at 2 o'clock in the morning? This is Israel's voice, so loud, so joyful, that they could be heard far away. That's beautiful. That's a party, celebrating as the people of God properly should. And it leads us to uh, the second point, the beauty of our singing. If we have reflected on the joy of our singing, now let's talk a little bit about the beauty of our singing. I want us to not simply think about their motive, which is joy, but to say it like this, their manner as well, which is beautiful. And if you can't tell, I'm actually a little excited about this point, and I think that you should be as well. I asked our very patient, very generous musicians to be able to play today and to make things a little bit on the beautiful and lively side, which they've already done quite well. And for that, I am very grateful. And and why? Why go the extra step to make sure that we might have Uh, our instruments today? Well, it's because you see those exact sort of instruments in our text. There's a reason why we have these instruments here. There's a reason why uh, we find them proper. They may not always be here. They're not uh, required to be here. You are allowed to take days off or to rotate. But we see something beautiful in our text that tells us something not only about uh, the person of our God, but the character and the manner of our worship as well. Worship by the people of God is very often adorned with beautiful instruments. It's, it's the color of it, so to speak, that takes it uh, from black and white at a certain level into the beauty of color. Look at verse 27. You can't help uh, but sense the beauty of it. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and singing, and with cymbals, harps, and lyres, if you go down a little bit further, we have trumpets listed here as well. Uh, this is a beautiful collage of beautiful instruments. It is operatic and symphonic. It is not simply the gathered people of God or the gathered voices of the people of God. It's the gathering together of beautiful, fine instrumentation. Much like you see not only uh, here in this book, 
But elsewhere in other books of the Bible, throughout the Psalms, think about Psalm 150, which will be our call to worship next week. We're there uh, in the grand temple of God. You have this wonderful collage of instruments. And not only are they all there, it's kind of loud. Just like Nehemiah 12. It's full of life. It's full of joy. We could use the word uh, exuberant. They're celebrating. They will not be quieted. Musical instruments, when used properly, and we'll come back to that even more next week, uh, they do not form the substance of our worship. This is to say they don't take our place. But they complement and adorn it. They find their place. To use an illustration, a bride is not beautiful because of her dress or her veil. She is already beautiful. Which of you would go up to a bride and say, you know, without that, without that veil on, without that particular white dress on, you're really nothing to look at. That won't go so far, right? Uh, but the dress is a compliment. The veil is an accent. And there's something uh, quite appropriate about that metaphor, because if our worship should, uh, should have close contact and symmetry to anything, it should be that of a wedding. Uh, if you think of church as funeral, uh, we have failed you, and you are not thinking right. This is not a funeral. We do not gather together to worship uh, a dead Savior, but a living one. And we come in the spirit, not of a funeral with grieving, but rather a wedding with rejoicing. A king is no less a king without his crown, but when the crown is on his head and his signet upon his hand and his staff uh, under his arm and his royal robe on him, he is adorned with dignity and honor, and he is even beautiful. And uh, without getting kind of creepy about it, uh, we ought not to think of beauty as a somehow gender-specific idea, as though only women are beautiful. Beauty is properly a term that we would use for the people of God, for the worship that we offer to God, and for the church together as a whole. Jesus is called in Scripture and sung in our hymns as a beautiful Savior. Creation is filled with not only glory and honor, but even beauty itself. We are often called into worship and told to do so in the beauty of holiness. Our worship, here's the point, should be beautiful. We're not striving after the lowest common denominator as though somehow elevating our worship with the addition of beautiful instruments uh, is a bad thing, although it can become a distracting thing when done inappropriately. But our God is holy, and our beauty and beauty in worship adorns our worship. This is not to say that worship uh, is not pleasing to God if it does not have all these instruments that we see here in our text, but it is enriched. It is enhanced. It is beautified. It is a sad thing to me, and many of you know it well, that this subject has become so controversial in the church in its history. Uh, that's too bad, because the subject of instruments in worship is very biblical. Some in history have taken the approach of no instruments at all. And I've been in congregations, uh, even conferences, where that was the approach. And actually, you know what? It sounded gorgeous. A whole collage of voices singing a cappella and doing it actually uh, quite well. I actually thought it was very lovely, and I enjoy it when we have our a cappella stanza. Perhaps uh, you do as well. There's nothing wrong with it, nor is it the only thing that the Bible prescribes and allows. Others, on the polar opposite, uh, take instrumentation uh, to the point of reckless abandon, where the instrumentation, the volume, 
The very style itself becomes a means and an end all at the same time and quite a distraction to those who are trying to worship as they feel outperformed by the professionals up front. Scripture here and elsewhere describes not simply the content of our worship, uh, but even its form. And if we were going to use two terms, the two terms that guide this week and next, beauty and faithfulness. But now let's talk about the choir. That was just to think about the instruments. It's not simply that there are a collage of instruments there that day. Uh, There's a choir, and in fact, two choirs. There's a choir that goes this way, and there's a choir that goes that way. I find this to actually be um, pretty cool. Let's just say pretty pretty. Beautiful. Verse 31, take a careful look at it. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and pointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and the others went the other direction. You can tell who lost rock, paper, scissors there. Two beautiful choirs. Two great choirs composed of large numbers of people. If you look at the details, you have not only uh, the representation there of the leaders of Israel, which would technically be uh, the Levites and those leaders from Judah that are designated and the priests that are gathered, but also the people are mentioned as well. This would be a two large collage, like two football teams, one going this way up that side of the wall and the other going that way up the side of the other wall. One went north, the other went south. The mention of the several gates that we've reviewed earlier in the book implies unambiguously that this is a large group. This is like a parade that now splits and goes two ways down two side streets. Verse 40 uh, displays what we might refer to, and I just think this is fantastic, uh, what we might describe as antiphonal singing or singing in parts, where you have these two choirs virtually singing back and forth to one another, almost like another scene of the Bible where you have the people of God split onto two sides of a hill, speaking God's word back and forth to one another. Here you see these two choirs formed almost as though singing in parts, singing back and forth to one another. And what were they singing? Uh, Almost uh, without, well, it's almost undeniable. How's that? It's pretty likely, that's better grammar, it's pretty likely that they were singing the Psalms. You'd have to work pretty hard to prove something different at this point, especially if you look at the earlier chapters and where they're at in history. And their singing was lovely. This would be a day you would not forget. This would be like a parade, a moment in history, a coronation. This would be uh, like when the sailors came home. You would not forget not only the things that you saw, beloved, you would not forget the things that you heard. And not just because it was loud, but foremost because it was beautiful. Their singing was lovely. It was well-coordinated. It was well-conducted. It struck the emotions like the chords of the heart. And again, many of us have that sense of response to music. You know the way uh, that music can play with the emotions, both for good or for ill. There's some music uh, that almost by itself seems to have a very elevating and lifting effect on you. And there's other music that makes you rather edgy. I've never met a man who goes to the gym and listens to Beethoven. It just doesn't happen. And I've never met a young lady who wanted to walk down the aisle to Megadeth. They just don't belong. They would be unfitting. But there is something beautiful about their singing a cappella. I love it here when we sing in rounds. It makes me, in some ways, think of my days back in the, in the Baptist world. We have a, a little bit less timidity 
about singing in rounds and parts. It's kind of a playful job. They don't take it too seriously. But it is beautiful when we sing together and we embody the variety, the diversity that Scripture seems to afford the people of God that the worship we offer to our God might be one simple thing, faithful and beautiful in His sight. Yesterday I was speaking with someone with the men's study that uh, there's a sense in which our worship in a certain way uh, reflects our Trinitarian theology. Because on the one hand, we are many. And at the same time, we are one. And there is a beauty and there is a diversity and yet a harmony. And when these voices gather together and they sound beautiful, it is really a remarkable sight. When these instruments gather together and they are all in harmony with one another, it is quite a beautiful sight. When the one and the many gather together this way, it is amazingly beautiful. It is joy and notice, joyful. Now, notice uh, not only were there uh, those that were called to participate in it, uh, there are women and children here described as also listening to, participating, and rejoicing, and people could hear it far away. Can you find a more beautiful moment in Israel's history than Nehemiah 12? You'd have to work at least a little bit. Can you find a larger, louder party of the people of God in the Old Testament than here in Nehemiah 12? Well, if they had reason to celebrate, how much more do you? If they had reason to get loud, how much more do we? And let's look at why, in our third point, our singing Savior. We should first begin with the bad news. It wasn't all party and celebration. There was sin to be dealt with that day. Our text does not overlook it. If you fix your eyes on verse 27 for just a moment, the highlight of it uh, is there as well. That's not the verse I wanted. Sorry. When they come to the point of purifying themselves, give me just a moment. Perhaps I need longer than a moment. No, just hold on. Okay, I've got it. Verse 30. At verse 30, the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So here's the point. On the one hand, we have a grand party here, and a lot to celebrate. Beautiful instruments, beautiful voices, two well-composed and conducted choirs. But in the midst of their celebration, they cannot overlook this reality, that sin is present and it must be dealt with. The people are present, but they must be washed. The priests are present, but they must be washed. Even the city walls as well must be purified. Uh, The word for purification uh, is the word washed. And often uh, that word actually is baptizo. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9, the word here for washing is the same word, uh, baptizo. Children, if you wonder why it is that on Sunday your parents forever and ever have had you clean up and put on nice clothes for church, it's Nehemiah chapter 12 in a certain sense. The people of God took a bath. They washed up basins like we use for our baptism, but a little bit larger, full of water, they would go to, and they would bathe. And then they, having been purified, were dressed for the occasion. And the reason why is very important. Don't overlook it. It's not that clothes make the man, or clothes and washing uh, somehow cleanse the heart or make us appropriate for God. God sees beyond all that. That is to be sure. 
<clears throat> but Psalm 24 asks a very important question. It's pertinent here. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall enter the presence of God? He has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to what is false. Habakkuk 1, verse 13, says it in another way. God himself is of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Israel's story is a beautiful one. Israel's story is a redemptive one, but Israel's story is also a marred one. The very fact that they are back means that they left. The very fact that they have been restored and repopulated means that they were taken away and they were reduced to a few. A holy people who is yet at the same time, by nature, a very sinful people. Celebrations of deliverance must be seen against the backdrop of the exile, which was the consequence of their sin. And now as they're about to rededicate the city walls, the people and the priests not only need to be purified, as Israel's history has taught, they are in constant need of purification. And even we, beloved, have a standing, regular feature in our liturgy every single week, the reading of God's law, prayer of confession, and assurance of pardon. And why is that? Because every week we break God's law, we have sin to confess. But beloved, where would you be without an assurance of pardon? Skip that point, and you're left with the law, but not with grace. And this is what brings us to the gospel. There's only one who could enter into the presence of God. There's only one who could walk upon the walls of the city. There's only one who could enter in the doors of the temple. There's only one that could go all the way into the Holy of Holies and himself never need to be washed or purified for his own sin. For unlike the people in Nehemiah 12, the priests, the Levites, the men, the women, the children, and the boys, and you and me, only one person in human history, the God-man Jesus Christ, did not need to be purified from his own sin. And yet the irony is, the sweet, poetic, musical irony is, that he who was perfectly free from all sin and had no need of purification was made sin for us, became the one who was clothed in our sin, became the one who, although he never sinned, was dirtied, if you will, as our sins were imputed to him. He is the one who stood in our place. He is the one who bore all of our sins upon the cross. He is the one who came back from the great exile of death, not into the land of Persia, but into the grave. He is the one who has caused the people of God to once again have a place even better than Jerusalem, a city even better than that golden city, and to repopulate not simply with long, difficult Hebrew names, but names taken from every nation, tribe, and tongue that gather together, and guess what they become? One beautiful choir. Trick question. Who's in the choir here? Answer, everyone. Who will be in the choir in heaven? Answer, everyone. Not only those of you who have a really beautiful and well-trained voice, but the rest of you normal people like me are all a part of the choir. Yes, it may be fitting for certain people to stand aside at certain moments to exercise a particular gifts, but not in a way that disrupts or distracts from what God has called us clearly to do. But if we focus on that which is most clear, it is very important to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ. This is the reason why we read from Hebrews chapter 2. It is arguably one of my favorite, although strange places in the Bible. For there it describes 
Jesus is doing the one thing that for some reason seems the hardest for me to understand and believe. Jesus singing in heaven. But it's taken from Psalm 22. It's a quote from Psalm 22. And it fits very nicely into this text because here in Nehemiah 12, you have Ezra and Nehemiah and the priests leading the people of God into the presence of God to sing beautiful songs to the glory of God. Who, beloved, is your worship leader? Well, it's not me. It's ultimately Jesus. Jesus is the one who leads us into the presence of God. Jesus is the one who, according to Hebrews 2, conducts the great choir of heaven. Not only is he the recipient of song, but he's also the great song leader of heaven. And if Jesus is a beautiful Savior, how beautiful ought our worship to be in response to him? Where we give him not the very least that we can conjure up, the lowest common denominator of our gifts, our ability, our talent, and our joy. But he who is our all in all receives our all in all as we sing beautiful songs to a beautiful Savior. Do you find our worship beautiful? Well, it is, in my eyes, in a certain sense, adorned with greater beauty when we add our extra instrumentation there are those Sundays where we sing really well and clearly and the, and the pastor starts the song on time. And then there are rest, the rest of the Sundays. But what's the point? What makes our worship beautiful ultimately does not depend upon the presence of certain instruments, although it adds to it, you might say. But what makes our worship beautiful is the presence of our Savior and whether or not the instruments are finely tuned, whether or not our hearts are. And this is where I find myself often frustrated with myself, and maybe you do too, not frustrated with me, but frustrated with yourself. In other words, what hinders our worship from being beautiful? Sometimes, some of us feel like we are simply going through the motions. You become familiar with the order. It's almost like a triad of baseball bases, and you could run them with your eyes closed. You become so familiar with the order, with the timing, with the motions, with the language, with the little cues. Sometimes uh, we come to church, and sometimes we come to worship. And there's a remarkable difference between the two, between coming to church and coming to worship. But perhaps, if I could offer this pastorally and gently, perhaps... There is a reason why we are sometimes frustrated with our worship. It has nothing to do with the instruments or the familiarity of our liturgy. Perhaps the reason we are sometimes frustrated with our worship is that we tend, be with me here, this is an important point, perhaps we tend to focus on the things that make us happy during worship rather than the one alone who can make us joyful. And when we fix our eyes on the little things that might make us happy rather than the one who makes us joyful, it has a profound effect. What do you think about when we're here? What should you be thinking about when you're here? Where are your eyes fixed? Where should your eyes be fixed? Did you know no one is sad in the presence of God in heaven. Because I know you know that as we gather together for worship, the call to worship, the very point of it is to call us out of this world and into presence. 
when, as one of my favorite theologians likes to say, our heads but for a little while are popped up above the clouds and all that is ours and truly lasts and truly invigorates and brings joy is accessible even by faith to the people of God. And no one is sad there in heaven in the presence of God. Our worship, beloved, should rise above this present evil age, its passing pleasures, and even the trite candy-like things that might make us happy, the absence of which, when we have joy, a joy that cannot be taken away, should not hinder our worship. That should be our goal in our prayer, to fix our eyes on a Savior who not only died for us and was raised for us, but if you take Hebrews 2 properly and ask the question, what is Jesus doing in heaven? Yes, he is interceding, but part of that intercession involves song. And Jesus is singing beautiful music in heaven. In his presence, there is fullness of joy and song. Final question. How do you know a joyful church when you see one? They are singing. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we know that you are God not only of order, but also of beauty. You grant to us in this life little things that make us happy and great things in this life that make us joyful. We thank you, Lord, for those things that are eternal, which uh, we cannot see by the naked eye. And yet, Lord, what an irony is that we sometimes fix the eyes of our faith upon the present things that we can see and yet do not last. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us to fix the eyes of our hearts upon eternal things, lasting things that will bring us joy. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to stop coming to church and always come to worship to leave here not asking the question, what did we get, but what did we bring before our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We thank you for that occasion that made Israel so glad and joyful, but we rejoice in the fact that we have even more, even greater reason to sing and to do that with loudness, with joy, and yes, with beauty. This Lord, help us to have beautiful worship here, worship that is pleasing to you and pleasing to us. Help us, O Lord, to recognize the many gifts and talents that you have entrusted to our hands and to our hearts. And might we use them well to glorify and enjoy you as we commune with you and even with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.